So, we are studying Aparoksha Anubhuti, an introductory text, introduction to Advaita Vedanta, written by no less than Shankaracharya himself some 14 centuries ago. And in the last two classes, we have covered the introductory verses and then the preparatory disciplines which are enumerated up to verse number 9. The preparatory disciplines in Vedanta are called Sadhana Chatushtaya. Sadhana Chatushtaya, the fourfold discipline. The fourfold disciplines being Viveka, that is the ability to discriminate between, analyze the eternal and the non-eternal. Vairagya, a dispassion for the non-eternal, for the transient, and a desire to realize the eternal. And then disciplines, a six-fold discipline called the Shat Sampatti or six-fold treasure. Shama, Dhamma, Uparati, then Titiksha, Samadhana and Shraddha. So six-fold discipline and I'm not going to go into the details. We have spoken about it last time. And finally, Mumukshutvam, a great desire to attain this ultimate goal of human life, that is spiritual illumination, spiritual freedom, call it God, call it whatever you will. So these fourfold um, preliminary preparations, they sound pretty advanced, I'm calling them preliminary, but these are the basis, the foundations for Jnana Yoga, the path of knowledge. And now we are really ready to start the text. The actual teaching of the text will start from verse number 10. So let's come to verse number 10. Ukta sadhana yuktena Ukta sadhana yuktena Vichara purushena hi Vichara purushena hi Kartavyogyana siddhyartham Kartavyogyana siddhyartham Atmana shubham ichatam Atmana Shubham Ichata. This is the tenth verse. What does it mean? What does Shankaracharya tell us here? With these sadhanas, with these preliminary preparations, which preliminary preparations? Go back to the last month. In case you've forgotten, the fourfold preparations which we just spoke about, equipped with these preliminary qual qualifications. The spiritual seeker, the Purusha, the spiritual seeker, should engage in uh, vichara, philosophical inquiry, a spiritual inquiry. For what? Jnana siddhyartham. For, uh, for gaining spiritual illumination. So one should, uh, one should engage oneself in spiritual inquiry or philosophical inquiry in order to produce that spiritual knowledge which will set us free. Why should we do that? What's the purpose of everything? Shubham ichchata. Atmana shubham ichchata. Desiring one's own well-being. Desiring one's own well-being. Well, let's look a little deeper into this verse. Let's start with the goal and uh, the end, you know. What, what do we want here? And here Shankaracharya tells us, the person who wants his or her own well-being, that person should do this. Now, who does not want well-being? We all find here that there is suffering, there is misery, and we want to overcome the suffering in our lives, in the lives of others. And that is what we consider well-being, happiness. We are all pursuing happiness, we are all pursuing satisfaction in life, and we want to overcome dissatisfaction, suffering, dukkha. The Sanskrit term is dukkha. Who does not want it? It's a fundamental fact of life. I was reading this book on uh, happiness written by a Buddhist monk, a French scientist, a French scientist who became a Buddhist monk, a Tibetan Buddhist monk. And he's written this book on the Buddhist point of view, the Buddhist approach to happiness, the whole concept of happiness. And he starts with a very interesting story 
Many, many years ago in an ancient uh, kingdom, a young prince was getting ready to rule the kingdom. He told his friend, who was uh, the son of the, of the visor, of the minister, who was a scholar. He said, my friend, you're interested in history. I have a request. I'm getting ready to rule this kingdom after my father, and I need wisdom. So why don't you study human history and put together whatever you have found, write it down, and then give it to me so that I can get the essence of human history, the essence of the history of human civilization, essence of the history of humanity. I want that. So put it all together. And this man, he was interested in history anyway, so he started working on this huge project. And he started studying and research and all. And an entire decade passed, after which he was ready. He came to the prince who was by now the king of the king kingdom. His father had passed away and this prince was in charge of the kingdom. He had begun to rule the kingdom. And the scholar comes out of his retreat and says, O prince, O king, your Highness, I have completed the task you set upon me of um, writing down the essence of human history, the history of the story of humanity, and all the lessons that we can learn from it. Here it is, 30 volumes. <laughs> and uh, the king said, are you crazy? I have just taken charge of the kingdom. I'm terribly busy. I've got so much to do. And I have to establish myself. I'm, I'm just starting off. I don't have time for that, 30 volumes. When can I read 30 volumes? Condense it, condense it. Make it shorter, make it uh, much shorter. So what could the scholar do? He went back to his uh, study and again worked on it and worked on it. Two decades passed. After two decades, he comes back. Both of them are mature now, the scholar and the king. And he says to the king, oh king, here is what you asked me to do. All my work, my research, have condensed it from 30 volumes to these 10 volumes. 10 volumes! I am busy. Now I'm formulating the tax policies, the construction policies, and so many things for the kingdom. New laws are being promulgated, and so on and so forth. 10 volumes of history. I can't do this. You have to make it shorter. Condense it. Condense it further. So the scholar goes back, and he works in his study. Three decades pass. <laughs> and then he comes back. He's old, he's stuttering, he's on a stick. And the king, he is extraordinarily busy. There's a kingdom, the war, uh, enemy has declared war and his king is on the frontier and he's fighting this war. He's also aging. And the scholar comes to him in his war camp and goes into his tent and he says, Your Majesty, just a moment, please. Yes, I'm busy. Well, here is the summation of so many decades of work. This one volume contains the entirety of human history. One volume is too much. Condense it further. Condense it further. I'm busy with this war. Years pass, another decade or two passes, and both of them are very old now. And the scholar comes. He's old. He has to be carried in a palanquin. And the king is on his deathbed. He's old, <laughs> sick, and dying. And the king whispers to him, I don't have time to read. Just give me the gist of it in one sentence, just, just a word or two. What is the essence of human history? And the scholar, who's also very old, he whispers into the ears of the king, the essence of human history. They suffer, your majesty, they suffer. That is the essence of human history. People suffer. <laughs> so, unhappiness, suffering, that was the first noble truth that the Buddha taught. And the desire to overcome this all-pervasive suffering, desire for one's own well-being and the well-being of others, this is the primary motivation be behind all of our actions, everything. Sometimes we look in the wrong places, you know. People, um, we want well-being, we want happiness, but if you ask persons, people in the world, what, do you, what, what is your aim right now? Most people don't have a name, most people don't have a goal, but if they do, it'll be something like, I want to make a million dollars, I want to build up this company, I want to look after my family, I want to do this, or write a book, or paint a picture, or something like that, or travel. Now, that's all right, but behind all of them is the pursuit of well-being. They want to be happy, people want to be happy. That's why they are doing all this. In fact, they've forgotten that the, these were all in, first, in, in the first place. We took, the, took up these projects 
in order to be happy. Now those projects have become aims in themselves, masking the real project behind the whole thing that we want to be happy. Are people happy? You may say yes and no. There was a survey recently in the well-off countries in Western Europe and in America. And it seems that the survey revealed most people are quite satisfied with their lives. It's a good life. You have freedom. You have at least a great deal of prosperity, health, the freedom to pursue what you want in life. Not bad, actually. It's a pretty good life. So is this happiness? And in, in the uh, surveys, they say that, yes, we are. If not happy, we are not dissatisfied. It's a good life. Well, the thing is, this kind of happiness and unhappiness are not too far away, not too far apart, because this kind of happiness depends on a whole set of circumstances holding true. I am happy, but the moment when everything is going well, I am happy. But that happy, happiness is terribly vulnerable. Laid off, got laid off, terribly unhappy. Got struck down by an accident or a disease, terribly unhappy. Somebody behaved rudely to me in the office, again unhappy. So it is a whole set of circumstances, things going well, which support the happiness of most of us, at least in the, uh, in the more advanced societies of the world. And it's good to have these societies. That's the most a society and a government can do to assure a healthy, prosperous, free life for its citizens. But as you can see, that is not enough to assure happiness. We are still terribly vulnerable to unhappiness. Real happiness would be internal. Real happiness would be stable. Real happiness would be secure against all the blows that fate can throw at us. I have seen a monk in our monastery in India who was paralyzed in both feet, both legs. He couldn't walk. He was old, sick, and both eyes, he's lost vision, he's blind in both eyes. And for, de for more than a decade, I think he was like that. One of the happiest persons I've seen. An indomitable spirit, I can never forget this. Other people would come to him, including other monks, to get motivated, to get cheered, you know, uh, to get a boost. So, what is the happiness? What is the source of happiness of such a person? What is the source of flourishing, of well-being of a, such, such a person, which cannot be assailed by anything else? This permanent source of happiness, this completely secure source of happiness, this is real well-being. The Gita says that, na dukkhena guruna api vichalyate. At having attained that state, having attained that, uh, that realization, after which even the greatest of sorrows, the greatest of sorrows will be unable to sweep one away. Having attained that, after which nothing more remains to be attained. You see, all the things that we attain for our own happiness in the day-to-day -day life, what people are chasing, everywhere they have a common experience that once they attain it, there's something more to be attained. It's not enough. They want more of that, more variety of that, or something else entirely. But what is that? Is it possible to get something after which nothing more remains to be desired? Is it possible to get that kind of happiness being established in which even the greatest of sorrows cannot shake you, cannot affect you at all, cannot move you one inch from that source of happiness? Remember here, we are not talking about you know, the eradication of all kinds of suffering. I mean, let me make a distinction between um, suffering and unhappiness. There may be physical suffering. The monk I was speaking about was suffering physically. Sri Ramakrishna had cancer in the throat and they were suffering physically. But internally he was not at all unhappy about it. One can be completely happy with one's lot in life no matter what happens in the world outside or in, in, the, in, the, in the body because happiness is an internal state. The internal state of peace and joy. Externally, what happens does not have too much to do with. It has something to do with our internal peace and happiness, but, not, uh, but it's, it's not all. One can have everything externally and be quite unhappy internally. It seems the Dalai Lama said, 
here's this rich person, extremely rich, he moves into the hundredth floor of his new penthouse and everything, and if he's terribly unhappy, all he's going to look for is, a, is the window to jump out of. <laughs> so, externally one may satisfy all the conditions of happiness and still be terribly happy inside, Externally, one may have many conditions which lead to suffering, dukkha, disease and poverty and whatnot, and still be quite really happy, unshakably happy inside. Such examples are there. So that real source of well-being, atmana shubham ichchata, one who really seeks that deep source of well-being, established in which the Gita says one wants nothing more. Established in which the Gita says, even the greatest of sorrow cannot shake you. So the person who is seeking that, ichchata, desiring, real well-being, that is a spiritual seeker. Such a person, ukta sadhana yuktena, being equipped with this sadhana chatushta, with the fourfold qualifications. You know, in the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, we read again and again and again, Sri Ramakrishna speaks about chitta shuddhi, purification of the mind, chitta shuddhi. Now, this is one thing to understand. What we call sadhana chatushtaya, the fourfold preliminary qualifications in Vedanta, and what Sri Ramakrishna talks about as chitta shuddhi are one and the same thing. The signs that we have got chitta shuddhi, purity of mind, are, that, are these fourfold qualifications. These will increase. Viveka will increase. The clarity about what is eternal and what is transient in life, this will increase. This will become more clear in our minds. Vairagya, an intense desire to realize the eternal, to actually experience God. And a dispassion, a disregard for the passing fancies of the world, that will increase. The disciplines, sixfold disciplines, will become stronger. And finally, an intense desire to realize God will, um, will keep on increasing. A kind of divine discontent. That until we realize God, we have really not found anything in worth, worthwhile in life. So these, if these are happening, these are signs of Chitta Shuddhi. Pure purification of mind. So what Sri Ramakrishna calls Chitta Shuddhi, and what in Vedanta we call Sadhan Chatushta, the fourfold um, preliminaries, are one and the same thing. Chitta Shuddhi is a state which is the symptoms or manifestations of which are an increase, an excellence in these fourfold qualifications. Now, what should this person do? Ready for Vedanta? Should engage in philosophical inquiry, spiritual inquiry. Vichara, he says, for what? Jnana Siddhyartham, for spiritual illumination. Remember, Viveka, Vairagya, stability in spiritual practices, concentration of mind, uh, moral disciplines, all of these are still preliminaries. Why are they preliminaries? They are definitely spiritual practices, but they are, they are beginning. They, they are the foundation, they are preliminaries. Why are they preliminaries? Because they are in the level of the mind. They are in the level of the mind. You can feel them when you are awake in this state. The moment the mind goes to sleep in deep sleep, they are gone. There's neither purity nor impurity, no, no concentration, no lack of concentration. None of them make any sense when the mind is not there. But what exists when the mind is also shut down? When you are awake right now, when you are asleep and dreaming, and when you are not dreaming in deep sleep, in all three states, what is constant? That unchanging consciousness, which is a witness to all the states of our, our experience, which is a witness to the five sheets, the panchakosha, that self, the pure self which Advaita Vedanta talks about, that is to be realized. And for that knowledge, one should do vichara, inquiry. If inquiry, if that knowledge is required and spiritual inquiry leads to that knowledge, then why not go straight there? Why not go straight there? Why not start, why not skip over the earlier uh, practices and go straight to, you know, like flip 20 pages and go straight into the heart of the matter. Well, because without Chitta Shuddhi, inquiry will not succeed. Why will inquiry not succeed without Chitta Shuddhi? Chitta Shuddhi, purification of the mind, basically means having a sattvic mind. 
You know, in Vedanta we speak about sattva, rajas, tamas. Sattva is the quality of purity and serenity, calmness and lightness. Rajas is the quality of dynamism, activity, excitement, passion, anger, jealousy. All of that is rajas. And tamas is inertness, dullness, laziness. Tamas. Now, sattvic qualities, um, sattva guna, is equivalent to purification of the mind, chitta shuddhi. Unless sattva guna increases in the mind, if we try to do vichara, philosophical inquiry or spiritual inquiry with a rajasic mind, with a tamasic mind, the inquiry will also be rajasic or tamasic. And the result will also be that. So therefore, a sattvic inquiry, a spiritual inquiry, spiritual inquiry, sattvic inquiry, same thing. A spiritual inquiry is what is recommended and for that one must have a sattvic mind as far as possible. So we cannot skip over, unfortunately, over the, over the less glamorous parts of spiritual practice. The foundation. Now, verse number 11. To get spiritual knowledge, one needs spiritual inquiry. But why? Why can't I meditate? Why only spiritual inquiry? Why can't I meditate? Why can't I pray or why can't I do a, a puja or something like that? Why can't I give lots of donations to poor people and build shelters for homeless people? Won't, won't that give me spiritual knowledge? Why spiritual inquiry? Let's see. Notpadyate vinagyanam Notpadyate vinagyanam Vicharenanya sadhanehi Vicharenanya sadhanehi Yatha padartha bhanam hi Yatha padartha bhanam hi Prakashena vinakvachit Prakashena vinakvachit Knowledge is not brought about by any other means than vichara, philosophical inquiry. Just as you cannot see anything without light, without switching on the light. So here is a big claim that is made. How do we get spiritual knowledge? For that we need inquiry. Just take the example of a person who goes to college and wants to learn about science, for example. What does that person have to do? person has to inquire about science and that inquiry can take many different forms. He can go and read books, he can go and attend lectures, he can go to the laboratory and perform experiments and so on and he can think deeply. He can think very deeply about what he has done and read and heard and then understanding dawns. It's pretty much the same here. It's pretty much the same here. Vichara has to be done. Vichara is philosophical inquiry or spiritual inquiry and not all kinds of inquiry you see the path of knowledge must be understood for what it is path of knowledge does not mean reading a lot of books it does not mean attending lots of lectures unfortunately it does not mean giving lectures also uh, it does not mean uh, it also does not mean sitting in some meditation posture. None of that. The path of knowledge is Atma Vichara, is an inquiry into one thing. It's not knowing many things, it's knowing one thing. It's spiritual knowledge about who or what I am. This person, who is this person? What is this person? What is this entity? This is what we have to learn. So vichara, philosophical inquiry in Vedanta, it's not just reading Vedanta books. In fact, that's a very secondary aspect of it. The great German philosopher Schopenhauer, he said there are two kinds of philosophers, academic philosophers and genuine philosophers. Genuine philosophers are those who are puzzled by life. And academic philosophers are those who are puzzled by their books. So, here in, in vichara it means you have to be a genuine philosopher. You have to look at life and want to know what it's all about. Of course, books are there. They are only secondary. And it's not knowing many things. It's knowing one thing. What's that one thing? The reality within oneself. That's the, preliminary, that's the main thing that we would like to know. 
आत्मविचार वेदांत विचार इज इक्वल टू आत्मविचार वेदांत विचार फिलोसॉफिकल इंक्वायरी इन वेदांत इज इक्विवेलेंट टू आत्मविचार इंक्वायरी अबाउट वन सेल्फ अबाउट द ट्रू नेचर ऑफ वन सेल्फ वेन यू डू एनी इंक्वायरी मेक एन इंक्वायरी अबाउट फिजिक्स योर नॉलेज विल बी अबाउट फिजिक्स मेक एन इंक्वायरी अबाउट द सेल्फ योर नॉलेज विल बी अबाउट द सेल्फ सो दैट वन थिंग नोइंग विच एवरीथिंग इज नोन everything is known in the sense that not that you will become an encyclopedia after knowing the self you know the truth about everything knowing that one is brahman one also realizes everything that one experience in life is brahman it may sound profound but we'll clearly understand what that what that means as the book goes on it's beautifully explained what does brahman mean how does one know oneself as brahman how does knowing oneself as brahman let us know that everything is brahman it's explain in a crystal clear manner as we will go ahead we will see and the claim is if i know myself what good does it do well if i know myself the promise here is i will get that which i am searching for what am i searching for shubham well being what we are speaking about earlier that happiness that permanent happiness that unshakable unshakable source of flourishing of well being within which can help us to overcome all kinds of um, sorrow and suffering that we will get if we know who we are which means as a corollary let me add here that means all our suffering is because we do not know who we are this is the big claim made in advaita vedanta all happiness will come to us well being will come to us if we know who we truly are and all that we suffer right now is ultimately because we do not know who we are vedanta it's no surprise to anybody ultimately they will tell us that we are brahman existence consciousness bliss and we will be shown how we are brahman because we do not know that what happens i do not know i am purnam complete because i do not know that i feel incomplete i feel incomplete ignorance leads me to feel incomplete and then i try to complete myself from what from what i experience i do not experience the infinite existence consciousness bliss i experience this body and mind and the world in front of this body and mind and i try to grab things from this world in order to make myself complete and in doing so i do i act and actions are sometimes good or sometimes bad and they have consequences and then i'm trapped in the wheel of karma so the chain is agyana ignorance ignorance about what not physics chemistry or sanskrit or or even ignorance about uh, about vedanta ignorance about the self about what i'm really am, what i really am ignorance about that is agyana is the cause or avidya ignorance and the result of that is desire karma desire why because in between is a feeling of incompleteness and in order in order to fill me up in order to feel feel complete in order to feel you know get well being the feeling of that i keep grabbing things from the world outside wanting things from the world this is what is called desire karma and because of desire i have action prompted by desire and I, everything in the world i i things which i desire i try to pull into this little self add it to this little self in the hope of being happy so this action leads to consequences karma leads to consequences and we are trapped in the wheel of karma birth and rebirth birth and rebirth are the consequences of karma so therefore there the chain is avidya kama karma let me repeat that ignorance desire action once there is action good or bad we are trapped in the wheel of samsara now the way to get out of this wheel of samsara is to go go to the root of it the root is avidya ignorance ignorance about what ignorance about myself so what will help me only that which removes ignorance what removes ignorance what removes darkness light removes darkness what removes ignorance knowledge removes ignorance so knowledge will remove ignorance about myself when i realize myself as complete infinite that i do not want anything then 
the desire prompted by a feeling of incompleteness will disappear. Then all action born of desire will disappear. Remember, there still may be action. The person, the enlightened person in the world may still be engaged in altruistic action, but not action based on desire, selfish desire. And hence that person is free. So ignorance, desire, action. Get knowledge that removes ignorance, that removes the desire born of ignorance, and action born from that desire. So this is the logic behind the whole thing. So knowledge is necessary, and how will knowledge come? Through philosophical inquiry. He says, na anya sadhani, not by any other practice. When you come into this room, it's dark. What do you do? You switch on the light. Do you pray or, or do you uh, start trying to sweep away the darkness? Nothing. You just need to switch on light. In the same way, all we need to do is get knowledge. And that knowledge comes from inquiry. Any knowledge comes from inquiry. So other spiritual practices, we need not go to the temple anymore. I need not pray anymore. I need not repeat my mantra anymore. You're inviting deep, deep trouble. So there shouldn't be misunderstanding at this stage. All other spiritual practices, whether it is selfless work, you want to help the homeless people, educate the ignorant, uh, help the sick, uh, that's useful. That is extremely important for spiritual life. Bhajan, bhakti, devotional practices like rituals, like devotional singing and prayers and prayer especially, extremely useful. They are the, the major supports of spiritual life. Meditation. Meditation. So, is meditation useful or not? Of course. It's just like a person who goes and attends a lecture in a class and reads a book but refuses to think. Well, you will not get any knowledge at all. After the books, after the lecture, the person has to think very deeply. The thinking deeply is equivalent to the meditation in Vedanta. So meditation is useful, Raja Yoga is useful, devotion is useful, Bhakti Yoga is useful, and selfless work, altruistic action is useful, Karma Yoga is useful. So all sadhanas are important supports for Jnana Yoga. That's in the path of knowledge. Others are, all other spiritual practices are taken as important supports. But finally there must be spiritual inquiry, vichara, which will lead to knowledge and that knowledge alone will set us free. Then we come to verse number 12. What will be the form of this vichara? What will be the form of this vichara? How do I do this vichara? Well, it starts with verse 12 and goes on till the end of this book. The whole book teaches us how shall I actually do the spiritual inquiry. Remember, now they are not going to speak about devotional practices, about a temple or a, or a church or mosque or anything like that. They are not going to speak about karma yoga. They are not going to speak about meditation. At least not in the way we are used to thinking about meditation. All they are going to speak about now is the path of knowledge from now onwards. But remember, those things are not to be ignored. They are not to be neglected. Neglect them at your own peril. Right. Twelve. Koham katamidam jatam. Kovai kattasya vidyate. Kattasya vidyate. Upadanam kimastiha. Upadanam kimastiha. Vichara soyam idrishaha. Vichara soyam idrishaha. Beautiful. The essence of Vedantic vichara, Vedantic inquiry. Remember, whenever I say philosophy here, I mean Vedanta. Swami Vivekananda, in fact, has used this word. People think philosophy is something academic and Vedanta is something uh, spiritual. But Swami Vivekananda, he says, the whole purpose of religion is to manifest the divinity within. And then he says, do it by love, or he says worship. Do it by worship, by psychic control, by which he means meditation, by philosophy, by which he means Vedanta, Vedanta Vichara. So philosophy here means Vedanta Vichara, and Vedanta Vichara here means philosophy. Koham. Who am I? 
This is the essence of Vedantic inquiry. Who am I? You might say, that's easily done. Here's my driver's license. Well, that's not what we are talking about. But it's not the who am I alone. Katham idam jatam. Many people think that Vedanta only means who am I. No. Vedanta is knowledge of the totality of everything. Nothing is left out. After all, in the world, it's not just me. I and this entire universe in front of me. I and this. Aham idam. This is my experience. Subject and object. So an inquiry about the subject. Who am I? What is this thing? And what is all this? Katham idam jatam. What is the essence of all this? How did all this come about? How did all this come about? Kovei kattasya vidyate. What is the cause of all of this? Is there a God which created all of this? Upadanam kimastiha. What is the material, the substance out of which this entire universe, what, what's the reality behind this entire universe? Of what material is it made? Basically, the inquiry is of three entities. In Vedanta, Advaita Vedanta, the inquiry is of three entities. Jiva, Jagat, Ishwara. Jiva is the individual, me. The person who is studying Vedanta, who is attending this class, about myself. Who am I? What am I? That's one, most important. But also about the Jagat. What is the nature of the world? And about God. Because religion speaks about God. What's the truth about God? Is there a God? Of what nature is God? And the question about God here is broken up into two questions. You see, in all the theistic religions, God is spoken of as the cause of the universe, as the creator of the universe, in all the theistic religions. Whichever speaks about God, they say God is the one which created this universe. So when you create something, you have an intelligent cause, the intelligence which creates something, and the material out of which it is created. So the intelligent cause is called nimitta karanam and the material out of which something is created is called upadana karanam. Pretty much like a carpenter makes a table, so the wood is the upadana, material out of which the table is made, and the carpenter is the intelligence which has fashioned this table out of the wood. <laughs> Similarly, the question about God is split into two parts. One is, what is the nature of that intelligence behind this universe, if there is such a thing? And what is the material out of which the universe has been fashioned? So, three main questions. Jiva, myself. Jagat, universe. And the cause of this universe, God. Divided into two smaller questions. And let me not put you in any, any uh, further tension about the answers. We all know the answers, having come to Vedanta classes for years and years together. The answers will be, the, the, the inquiry goes like this. Who am I? This person, I think of myself as this person, Swami Sarva Priyananda. But this Swami Sarva Priyananda, it's a, it's a name. An Indian, it's place origin of this body. A man, this is the nature of this body. A Hindu, this is, comes from the culture I'm born into. And all of this disappears when I go to sleep. In deep sleep, in deep sleep, am I Swami Sarva Priyananda? No memory of that. Am I a man or a woman or an Indian or an American? No experience of that. And shall we say we do not exist in deep sleep? Then whose deep sleep is it? So, this very experience we have, the identity we have about ourselves, these are mental constructs floating in our mind, constructed, imposed by society, generated by ourselves through our life experiences. One blow to the head and it all goes away. Every ex the experience we all have. Proust, the famous French literator, he writes about suddenly waking up from sleep. And we have, most, most of us have had that experience. Sometimes when you suddenly wake up from sleep, you don't know where you are. You don't know what time is it. Am I waking up from the famous Indian afternoon siesta? Or am I waking up early in the morning? Or what? Who am I exactly? You grasp at some for just a split second or two, and then it all comes rushing back, hopefully. <laughs> at that point, when you do not know, when you're awake, you're not even seeing everything, you do not recognize anything, you do not recognize yourself, you do not recognize the time, the space, all of that, what are you? 
when all experience of the body is gone, say in, uh, in, in dream or in deep sleep, when all memory goes away, supposing without memories of the past, everything that happened till what outside the room till now, gone. All sensation of the body gone. All sensory experience is gone. You cannot, suppose you cannot see anything, you cannot hear anything, you cannot touch or smell anything. All thoughts cease. What are you? This is koham. What am I? Today's America and in the most of the modern world, there is another inquiry of who am I? You know, people say, what, what are you going to do? I'm dropping out of college and hiking to India. Why? I'm trying to find out who I am, really. That's not a spiritual inquiry. That's, uh, people try to do that. You know, I'm trying to discover myself. Especially in this country, people uh, drop out of college or education and maybe they're going to go and jo join a rock band or maybe going to do something or walk, hike around the country or something like that. And you know, what are you doing? Discovering myself. There, that's not a wrong idea, but there it's not a spiritual inquiry. There are discovering more about one's own mind and personality. That's a good inquiry to do, but let's be careful here. In Vedanta, that's not the pursuit. In fact, we'll take a very look, a very uh, casual look in passing at the mind and leave it behind. We are not going to take the scenic tour. We are going to go straight to the self. So... Who am I in the sense of discovering my potentialities, discovering my personality, what kind of person I am? That's a good inquiry, and many young people do it. Maybe they should do it also. But what you discover at the end of it is, again, from Vedanta's point of view, far away from what you really are. That's also a changing entity. So, koham, katam idam jatam, this universe, how does it come about to be? And what does Vedanta say to that, to that particular question? This inquiry again is not a scientific inquiry. We are not talking about whether the Big Bang Theory is right and how, what happened at the creation of the universe, how did the fundamental particles emerge. That is what Stephen Hawking is doing, not Shankaracharya. That's an inquiry, that's physics. But this is not what Vedanta is asking. What Vedanta is saying, this entire universe of my discourse the entire universe of my experience, my, what I'm experiencing life as, this entire universe in front of me, every night when I go into deep sleep, it disappears into the blankness of ignorance. My waking universe, my dream universe, is swallowed up in the darkness of deep sleep. When I wake up, again out of that blankness, that ignorance, that agyana of deep sleep, dreams come and the waking universe emerges. What comes from ignorance, what disappears into ignorance, the root cause of that is ignorance. Vedanta will tell us there is an ultimate reality called Brahman, which we do not know. That not knowingness is the root of this universe. Universe, Brahman, the ultimate reality, unknown, misunderstood, is the universe. The universe, properly understood, through Vedantic knowledge, is Brahman. So how does this world come about? It is through ignorance of Brahman. How does will the, how this world will go, if it at all has to go? Through knowledge of Brahman. We have to realize this world itself as Brahman, as the ultimate reality. And how does God create this universe? You see, the whole idea here is, this, is, this can be something we can think about when we leave this class today. Is there clay in the pot or is there a pot in the clay? A typically Vedantic question. Here is a pot. And they were obsessed about pots, I guess, in ancient times. You would always find an example about a pot here. But in, you know, whenever you do any archaeological excavation about any ancient civilization, what do you come across? The first thing you come across is pottery. And then we... They might have tossed it away. We just take it, 3,000 years later, we take it and we carefully put it in a museum, a broken piece of uh, pottery. Now the question is, is there clay in the pot? It's a clay pot. Is there clay in the pot or a pot in the clay? When we first say, when we take a look at a pot and we say, okay, it's made of clay, it's, there's clay in the pot. When we look carefully, it is clay. 
Outside it's clay, inside it's clay, the top is clay, the bottom is clay, so it is clay. So the pot is something that exists in the clay. It's like asking, is there water in a wave or a wave in the water? We'll think, okay, there is a big wave and there are lots of water in that wave. That's only at a preliminary look. If you look a little deeper, it was water earlier. When the wave dies down, subsides, it will be water. And right now it is water, nothing other than water. So the wave is in the water. The pot is in the clay. Not the clay in the pot. Go one step further. Is there a pot in the clay? Show me. Show me a pot in the clay. Like if you put water in the pot, you can show me the water, the water in the pot. Like that, show me a pot in the clay. You cannot. You say, Swami, how can I show you that? That, that thing is the pot. Really, if it is the pot, pot, let me take away the clay, you can keep the pot. You cannot. In fact, there is no such thing, no such substance, no such entity as a pot in the clay. There is only clay. There's a particular name and a form. There's a form which, you have, which the potter has made and we call it a pot and we use it like a pot. Name, form and transaction. Nama, Rupa, Vyavahara. But it is clay alone. The pot, Vedantin will say, is imagined in the clay. The pot is imagined in the clay. Why am I going on and on suddenly about pots and clay? Well, it's like this. Follow this carefully. Is there this universe, in this universe, is there consciousness? And say yes. Or is the universe in consciousness? It's exactly the same. You see a pot. Now is there a clay, is there clay in the pot or is the pot in the clay? I'm asking you, here is this universe and obviously there is consciousness because you are conscious, hopefully, so far, you're with me. You are conscious. Now this universe is there and you are there conscious. So your consciousness is in the universe or is the universe in your consciousness? Preliminary answer will be, of course, my consciousness is in the universe. Here is this vast universe and in it is this little body and in it is this little brain and in that little brain somehow consciousness is being generated. So consciousness is there in the universe. If you look a little deeper, you will find no experience, no evidence of any universe outside your consciousness. Think about it. When have you ever experienced the universe apart from your consciousness? The, log the question is logically impossible. Experience means consciousness. How can you have experience without consciousness? By consciousness I'm using a broad term. Awareness, sentience, whatever you call it. Every experience is in consciousness. We have this idea that there is a universe out there. Here is consciousness. It somehow goes out through the mind and the eyes and sense organs and touches this universe and gives us experiences. Rather, there is consciousness and the experience of the universe arises in consciousness. Now let's go to the next stage. Is there really a pot in the clay? If you have accepted the pot is in the clay, not the clay in the pot, is there really a pot in the clay? Let me ask you, is there really a universe in consciousness? That's how the inquiry will go. We'll see that just as a pot is a name and a form imagined in clay, pot is imagined in clay in the same way Time, space and causation, the very fundamentals of this universe are imagined in pure consciousness in Brahman. That will be the conclusion finally. And not a theoretical conclusion, not something to be believed in, not a fancy philosophical conclusion which we may learn and put away in our notes, but something that we shall actually experience vividly. Once we experience it, there is no coming back. Once you have seen that there is no pot in the clay. You're never, never going to find pot again. It won't prevent you from using the pot. But you'll know it as clay. You see, what is achieved is, when you see it first, it's a pot. When you go through this Vedantic teaching or confusion, whatever, at the end of this process, when you get out of the room and you see the pot, you say it's clay. So pot is not a reality. Pot is something imagined in the clay. We will actually see this entire universe, including this little person, is something that is superimposed, imagined, projected in consciousness. Consciousness alone is real. So that will be the conclusion. I'm uh, just pointing out what's in store for us. Vichara soyamidrisha. 
this is the nature of philosophical inquiry. This is the kind of inquiry we'll be engaged in, in the classes ahead. Let me quickly tell you what's going to happen next. Uh, in the next three verses, 13, 14, 15, very quickly, Shankaracharya will tell you what I've just told you. What is the nature of the inquiry into myself? What is the nature of the inquiry into the world? And what is the nature of inquiry into God? In one verse each, quickly he'll in indicate. Then he will start the, the long, detailed process. There will be a long process of finding out who am I. That will come from the 16th verse onwards and will go on for quite a while. Detailed, painstaking examination. Why am I not the body? If I ask you the question, Shankaracharya will guide us step by step. Take us by the hand and show you clearly the body is as, as much an object as this book or this table. It's an object entirely different from you. And we will not be able to deny it. First, we will understand it intellectually and we'll see it clearly in our experience. That yes, the body is an object. The body won't disappear, don't worry. Or don't be hopeful if you want that. body will still be there, but you can clearly see it as an object apart from you. That will be accomplished, not just the body, even better. Or more scary, depending where you're coming from. You are not the mind also. Annie Bardak wrote in this uh, beautiful article she wrote about Swami Vivekananda in the Wall Street Journal. In Swami Vivekananda's 150th anniversary. And she mentioned how the immense popularity of yoga in the United States uh, dates back to Swami Vivekananda who introduced Raja Yoga and different kinds of yoga in the United States, popularized it. Uh, but she writes that Swami Vivekananda would be surprised at how everything has become about the body. Yoga is entirely about the body here. And he, uh, she writes that Americans who rush about practicing yoga, millions and millions of them in so many studios, they would be shocked to hear the Swami say, you are not the body. So, well, at least for the peace of the mind and stress management, mind, mind, uh, managing the mind, they would be further shocked to hear the Swami say, you are not the mind either. <laughs> So, how am I not the mind? Most of us, we may not consider ourselves to be entirely the body, but we do feel we are embodied minds. We are in here. That's what we feel about ourselves. And he's going to show us with seven powerful reasons. He'll come forward and show us clearly, demonstrate to us how we are not the mind. The mind is as much an object as this. It's a gross object. The mind is a subtle object. He'll show it to us. And you'll actually begin to feel it. The mind is something that you can put on and discard. And then go further ahead. So that will come much later. And then beyond that, non-duality. How are, how, what is this universe and how are we one with this universe in Brahman? Existence, consciousness, bliss. Beyond that, with some philosophical discussion about Jivan Mukti will come in. And after that, yeah, I want to realize this. How can I make this a living reality? That comes at the very end. Don't jump ahead. It won't work if you jump ahead, let me tell you. A 15-step process. 15, 15 steps or 15 practices for enlightenment. It's given as 15 steps, but basically it's all one step. You know? and it's, a, it's the same thing in 15 different ways. So that will be prescribed. What are we to do, actually practice in our lives? So that comes at the end, and finally the results of all this knowledge. What, what's the payoff? And the payoff is great. There's nothing greater than that in entirety of the human experience. So that will come at the very end. That's what is in store. Stay with us, and I promise you a thrilling journey in the months ahead. I'll just say Om, I'll just give the Shanti, and then we'll have one or two questions. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tatsat Shri Ram Krishna Rupanamastu Questions? Yes, please wait for the mic. Thank you. Can action exist without desire? 
can action exist without desire? The answer is yes. But again, you see what has been said here is the difference between uh, action with selfish desire, desire for oneself, or action without desire here would mean action without selfish desire. Now if you say desire for the welfare of everybody, altruistic desire, that would not be considered harmful here. That would not be taken in the um, category of karma. You see, the Sanskrit terms are pretty clear. Karma. Karma is usually selfish desire. And nishkama would be without selfish desire. Now, could there be a desire for the welfare of the world? Yes, there could be. And that's non-binding. That's non-binding. The whole aim being freedom, a non-binding action or non-binding desire would not be considered a desire. Somebody asks Sri Ramakrishna, what about the desire for God? You keep talking about giving up all desires at the same time you say you should want God, you know, terribly, intensely. So isn't that a desire? And Sri Ramakrishna says very clearly, the desire for God is not to be counted as within desires. In Bengali he put it, that That means sugar candy is not to be counted as uh, sweet. The idea being that sweets lead to acidity and sugar candy actually <coughs> destroys acidity. The desire for God overcomes all other desires. So it's not a desire in that sense. Yes. Yeah. So we use the mind as an instrument to know uh, whether it is a selfish motive or non-selfish motive, right? Yes. But we also, on the other hand, we say that we are not the mind. Yes. So how do we really uh, know if you have to use mind as an instrument when you are not really the mind, yes. right? So how does that, um, there's a how does discrepancy it there? Yes. The answer is there in your question itself. How do you use the mind as an instrument when you know you are really not the mind or if you are not really the mind? In fact, you can use something as an instrument if you are really not that. You can use the microphone as an instrument. It is an instrument because it's not you. The one who uses is not the instrument. The one who uses something is different from that which he uses. That which he uses is an instrument. The Sanskrit term is karana, an instrument. In fact, the mind is called antah karana, the internal instrument. So the instrument is always different from the person who uses it. And the interesting thing is, in the case of the mind, we seem to violate it all the time. We keep thinking of the mind as an instrument and the mind as ourselves. Is the mind an instrument? If you have recognized the mind as an instrument, you are already pretty far ahead in Vedantic vichara, Vedantic inquiry. We, the problem is we do not recognize the mind as an instrument. It's like an instrument suddenly has become the ruler of everything, you know. It's, uh, I give the example of the science fiction story, um, a report on planet four or something like that. Uh, no, or the story goes like this. Aliens have come to Earth and they come in their flying saucers and they watch from space and they see all these this this you know cities and freeways and everything and they ride back to their home planet we have come across a race of intelligent beings in this planet um, and these intelligent beings are made of metal and they have four doors and four wheels and they run along on luxurious pathways and they have slaves little creatures with two legs and two hands who come and who take care of them and <laughs> the car is an instrument and the little creature who <laughs> seems to be taking care of the car is the master of the car. But often it may seem that the instrument has taken over. In our case, Vedanta says that's true. The mind has taken over. There's a Vedantic teacher who laments, uh, um, who says that kinkarasya kinkari kritovaham. He says, by the servant of servants, I have been made a servant. My servant, my, my servant is the mind. The servant of the mind are the, are the sense organs. I, the master of the mind and the sense organs, I have become a servant of my sense organs. Kinkarasya kinkari, kinkari kritoham. By the servant of the servants, I have been made a servant. Alas. I spend my life trying to satisfy the tongue and the eye and the ear. They are the servants of my mind and the mind is my servant. But I have become so identified with it. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Okay, this is the last question. Uh, question about verse 8 and Shraddha in particular. Yes. 
while the other uh, sadhanas seem to encourage uh, uh, independent inquiry, yes. guide us towards vichara, shraddha and implicit faith yes. seems to have that faith aspect to it. Yes, uh, yeah, absolutely right. One has to be uh, clear about this. When you say shraddha, what, what does it mean? It means an implicit faith, a strong faith that what the teacher and the scripture is telling us is true. Now, here are certain things to be understood here. First of all, what is it they are saying? Are they asking us to have blind faith? There's a difference between blind faith which says that you believe this and do what I say. You will get some proof and some result, but only after you're dead. Follow this, what I teach you, and just believe in it. There's no other way for you. That's blind faith. But if you say, here is something that you take for as a working hypothesis and do as told, you just practice these things, you will get experiences which will validate uh, what you have started of believing. That's an entirely different claim. Again, that's the claim of yoga. I'm not even saying that's the claim of Vedanta. Vedanta says something else again. Vedanta says, all you need to do is have the patience and the preliminary respect that these people are not talking nonsense. These people do know something that's worth learning. Let me give it a fair try. That's all. In fact, you are not supposed to believe in it. You're supposed to understand it. At the end of it, if you say that, well, I do believe in what you said, but I have got these questions. Well, you made a mistake. You're not supposed to believe in what I said. At the end of it, you're supposed to understand what has been said. After that, if it becomes a living reality, that's the goal. But even before that, just at the end of this course, I won't blame you if you are not enlightened. If you are not Jivan Muktas Brahma Gyanis, I'm not going to, you still get a passing grade. But if you say, there's a great thing, now I believe in Vedanta, you failed. You're not supposed to believe in it. Not at all. It has to be crystal clear, a fact of life. It should be as clear as that. There should be no doubt about it anymore. Every, in fact, every possible doubt people throw at you, you should be able to answer. This is how it works. So that is the nature of Shraddha here. That a preliminary respect for the material presented here and, and what the teacher is saying so that I can go ahead. This is nothing more than what people do when they get, when they get into USC or UCLA or something. If I think that the professor is a fool and the books are full of lies, and, and then I, don't, I, I won't go, into, go to the class. I'll doubt everything that they say. But generally, we don't do that. In fact, we a more healthy dose of skepticism in our classrooms would be even better, actually. So critical thinking, skepticism is good. That's one. And one more thing. Um, subtle point has to be understood here. Because you use the word free inquiry, Actually, this is not free inquiry. There is something like free inquiry. There is something like following a scripture, uh, a teaching of a religion which you have to follow, have to believe. This is neither. Something has been realized by these people and by a whole tradition of teachers since time immemorial. So they've already got it. A free inquiry is, I don't know what it is, let me see. Here it's not, I don't know what it is. They know what it is. But what they're going to do is, they're not going to say, we know what it is, you believe in what we say. No. They're not saying that, number one. Number two, they're also not saying, we don't know who we are, we don't know what this world is, let's sit and think, your ideas are great, my ideas are great, let's just think of something new. No, they're not saying that either. We know precisely. And we are going to take you by the hand, follow this process, just follow our reasoning, base yourself entirely at every step on reason and experience and you'll come to see it. You'll come to see what we see. So do you see the difference between free inquiry in the sense of philosophical speculation? You sit in armchair speculation. Let me doubt everything in the world. What is the one thing which I cannot doubt? You sit, Descartes sits in a rocking chair before the fire and thinks about it. That's philosophical speculation. That's one way of building a philosophical system. They are not doing that here. There are merits to that, there are demerits to that, but they are not doing that here. 
and the other one is we are i am the uh, the uh, prophet and the guru and the avatar and you believe in what i say that's it no sri ramakrishna never liked that in one in the gospel you saying something and the person was going on asking questions and somebody said when uni jokhon bolchen bishwas kore ninna when mene ninna when he is saying it when when sri ramakrishna is saying it why don't you just accept it and sri ramakrishna was furious he said you are a hypocrite he doesn't understand it and you're asking him to accept it i don't catch that the word he has used is uh, is a hypocrite so yes it's a good question one must understand the nature of the enterprise we have embarked upon it's not philosophical speculation it's not a variety of theories we are examining it's also not religious dogma not religious dogma it's pedagogy the teacher knows where he's taking us but we just have to walk carefully and every step understand and match it with our experience so that we come to see what the teacher sees all right thank you very much thank you